We are doing something different. Um, we're going to be in the book of Galatians. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, it's typical at our church that we go through books of the Bible. But today we're not going to do that. And the reason is that uh, for most of July, I was actually in Chicago at a preaching intensive. And I had to preach three sermons to all these pastors from actually all over the world and get feedback. And so I thought, well, I spent all this time and I got, in some sense, embarrassed uh, a little bit. So I might as well just share the fruit of the labor with you all. So we're going to spend the next three weeks and I'm going to re-preach the sermons I preached in Chicago here. And we're just going to call this sermon series the Chicago Mixtape, okay? That's what we're going to call it. And I am so grateful that I get to preach it here because when I preached it in Chicago, if I preached longer than 25 minutes, there was actually a timer and the timer went off like a, like, you know, a shot clock and you had to sit down and the guy in front of me preached and the timer went off and it was so embarrassing, so obnoxious. I vowed if I'm like halfway through my sermon, I'm just I'm going to look at that clock, pray, and sit down. I'm not letting that thing go off. So I'm just grateful that, as far as I know, there's no shot clock this morning. Uh, So so we're in Galatians, and we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 11, to the end of the chapter, verse 21. Um, I don't know if you guys do this, but from time to time, I will Google the top 10 most purchased Christian books of the year. Um, I do it for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I do it is that I'm just really curious what Christians are reading in America. And also, I'm not just curious, but I'm looking because often you can actually sense or see, maybe just anecdotally, kind of undercurrents going on in America. Like, what are Americans thinking about? What are they nervous about? And as I've been doing this the last few years, I've noticed that the top 10 books that Christians are buying and reading seem to have, at least from my vantage point, from my perspective, a common thread. There's a lot of books about how the church is failing. How, we could just put it metaphorically, how the church is burning, the house is on fire. And in lots of different ways, it's not just You know, one way, all these books have different slants on how the church is failing and drifting from the purity of her doctrine. So things like materialism and socialism and Marxism and individualism, like it's just whatever the ism is, this boogeyman is thwarting and eroding the effectiveness of the local church. And so all these books are written about it. And and we know... When we look at churches in the landscape of America, we have friends, we know experientially, and if you know a little bit about church history, we know that this can take place. Sometimes churches can drift from orthodoxy. Churches can drift away from the truth of the gospel. Churches can uh, become, in that uh, they can fail to be pure in their doctrine. But I don't think that's the whole story. That's a part of the story. That's like one side of the coin. But sometimes it's not just that churches fall because of doctrinal infidelity, a sort of watering down of truth. There's also another temptation. 
And it is the temptation we find ourselves in the book of Galatians in chapter 2. The church can fail in her doctrine, but the church can fail in another way. And I think for us today, sitting in this room, this is a far greater temptation. If we're going to drift, I think this is the manner in which we may be most tempted to drift. We can fail orthodoxy, but we can also fail in a different way. And this morning, what we're going to see in the book of Galatians is the, we can call it the evil twin of doctrinal infidelity. Chapter 1, we see the church teeter-tottering on drifting away from the truth of the gospel. But in chapter 2, it's another drift. And I'm just not ready to put all my cards on the table yet. But I'm certain that you, as we read this text, you're going to see kind of the evil twin of doctrinal drifting. So let me read the text. Chapter 2 of Galatians, starting in verse 11. Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians. Verse 11, but when Cephas, just, that's Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that the person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So the text and I think your English translation is a good divider. The text really can be divided in verses 11 and 14, and then secondarily verses 15 through 21. So we can call it, you know, 11 through 14 is the problem. And then in verses 15 through 21, this is the principle. Or we can say it is the crisis in 11 to 14, and then 15 through 21 is the correction, or my favorite because I like alliteration, is the rebuke and then the rationale for that rebuke. So let's look at this rebuke. Paul, in verses 11 through 14, describes, let's just put it, you know, frankly, a really awkward encounter that he had with Peter, right? He has this heated exchange with Peter here who's named Cephas. Now, there are a lot of details that are left out and there are a lot of books and a lot of ink that has been spilled trying to figure out all of the details about 
when this even took place kind of chronologically in the life of Peter and Paul. But we do have enough to know and kind of put the pieces together. And we know that James, that great protector and pastor in Jerusalem, he sends some men to Peter. And whatever they said and whatever kind of note they brought, Peter is terrified. He is afraid. And so Peter, in response to this whole scene, he does something. Or rather, he begins to not do something. Right? Peter, now at the church potluck, decides he's only going to eat at the Jewish Christian table. He's no longer going to eat with the Gentiles. That's the scene. That's what happens. That much is plain and clear. I I remember when I was um, in elementary school, I was sitting with all my friends at the cafeteria, and I remember this girl went and sat next to us. Um, I don't remember her whole name. I don't remember what she looks like, but I do remember what she smelt like. And I remember thinking instantly, she can't be a part of us. And I remember now, you know, years and decades later, to my shame, I remember what it feels like to exclude another person from table fellowship. Well, in some sense, that's what's happening here. Peter is separating himself from Gentile Christians And as a result of this, Peter, who, remember, he's got a huge Instagram follower at this point. Like, Peter is that pillar of the faith. Others are following suit. Barnabas and others begin to separate themselves from Gentile Christians. Now, I think at this point, some of us read this text and we're like, okay, Peter. Peter must be, you know, smuggling in works to salvation. So Peter now is falling prey to that works righteousness. And so it's grace plus works. It's, it's the gospel plus circumcision. It's you need Jesus plus food laws. We assume that that's what Peter's doing, but it can't be the case. Like it makes no sense. Peter is not drifting here from doctrinal fidelity. And we know that for, I'll just give you two reasons. I think we could list 10 reasons, but I'll give you just two reasons why we know that Peter is not drifting from the purity of the gospel at this moment. Remember Acts 10? Peter has this vision that God gives him about food. And basically, and this is, you know, God basically says in paraphrased form, he says, rise, Peter, right? Seeth thy pig and killeth and eateth thy bacon, right? Something like that, right? And then all of a sudden, Peter's like, all right. And he rises and he's like, I, I won't do that. And God's like, you better eat. And all of a sudden, Peter saw that bacon was good and he began to fill his, you know, his cholesterol full with bacon. And so it would make no sense after having that vision and then kind of teaching all that, that all of a sudden he's like, okay, no, no, sorry. I gotta, I gotta, I can't eat bacon anymore because, you know, th- that doesn't make any sense. And not only that, but if you just read it in context, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 9, Paul commends Peter, who's also called Cephas here, and he commends him as a pillar of grace, which is just a paraphrase for saying that Peter has the right doctrine. Peter is not failing here because he is not being orthodox. Paul's not coming after Peter because he doesn't know the gospel. Peter knows the gospel. He can teach the gospel. He can protect the gospel. He can evangelize the gospel. He can defend the gospel. He can write out the gospel on a napkin. That's not Peter's problem. Peter's problem, and it's always been Peter's problem if you know a little bit about his biography, 
Peter's problem is that he writes a check with his mouth that his life can't cash. Am I right? Peter, remember, is like, Jesus, I'll die for you. Wherever you go, I'm going. And a little girl backs him into a corner. He's like, I don't know who this dude is. I'm out. Peter was constantly talking one way and living another way. And we have a word for that, don't we? It's a dirty word. It's a word that if you levy against someone else, you instantly kind of are repulsed by it. You're like, don't call me that. Hypocrisy. A hypocrite. That is what Paul charges Peter with. You see it not once, but twice. Peter and the people who are beginning to separate themselves are called a hypocrite. Peter, you say one thing. You you preach this gospel, and yet you're living in a different way. And if you've ever engaged with people who are saying one thing and living another way, it is infuriating. Like nothing irritates us more. Nothing breeds anger more than when we see people acting hypocritical. I mean, do you remember those scenes? Uh, a governor, you know, the last uh, you know, a few years were like, you have to wear a mask everywhere, even when you're taking a shower. And then a photo comes out and they're at a dinner party with all their friends laughing without a mask. I mean, Twitter loses its mind. Am I right? And you're like, how could that be? Those moments in which we see someone speaking, but their lives are not consistent with what they said, well, it makes us really mad. It frustrates us. Few things breed, breed anger, frustration, like seeing someone live hypocritically. And it's why Paul gets all up in Peter's business, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is public. Verse 15, but when I saw that their conduct, you know, Peter's and all those who were following Peter, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul gets all up in Peter's business. But if we're honest, And it's something I've been thinking this past week and even longer as I've been just swimming in chapter two. We all have hypocritical tendencies. We all have a tendency to speak boldly and live cowardly. I mean, it's much easier to articulate the truths of the gospel, to to pass that exam, but living those truths, living in light of the gospel, so much more difficult. I mean, Paul gets all up in Peter's business, and this is rhetorical. I'm not going to ask for your advice, but there's a sense in which I think I got to get up in all of our business because we all do these from time to time, right? We, we come to church on Sunday and we shout and praise God for his glory and his goodness that all things that he does according to his sovereign will, are good. And then come Thursday and Friday when the test comes back and we get a B or the report comes back from our boss and it doesn't come back with flying colors, we instantly think, though we would never say it, we just think it in the back of our minds. God, are you good? I know I was singing and shouting about your love, but I don't know if you love me right now. We, we talk a lot about the 
the two great commandments, love God and love our neighbor. And yet, how difficult it is to actually love our neighbor, especially when our neighbors are more annoying than a mosquito. What do we do? We say, yes, we are called to love our neighbors, but sometimes I think the best Friday nights are just filled with looking at Redfin, trying to figure out if I can sell my house and pray that I get a better neighbor next time. And then when that happens, they'll be worthy of my love. We we talk about forgiveness. The gospel is all about forgiveness. Oh, but it's so easy to hold a grudge, is it not? We get so frustrated that our government is spending money they don't have, and yet how often do we spend Capital One money that we don't have as well? I mean, we could go on and on and on, right? I mean, I started aiming this at myself, and I was like, I'm going to stop here because I started to feel the weight of the situation because it's not just Peter. We all have a little bit of Peter in all of our hearts. Our doctrine, if you look at it on paper, is clean, The question is, is our conscience clean? It's one thing to articulate the gospel. It's one thing to state orthodox truths. It's another thing to live in light of them. Oh, that is so much more difficult. And if you're not a Christian, or if you're coming back to church, or if you're like, oh, I'm just trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing, I hope in one sense you're encouraged by this whole conversation. Because my guess is one of the reasons why you're not or interested or you're disinterested or you don't lack as much interest in Christianity is because of hypocrisy you see in Christians' lives or in the church, the things you see maybe on the news. And so right now, I think you should be encouraged by this fact and this fact alone. God takes hypocrisy in the church very seriously. And at this point, I I was reading a a bunch of commentaries. Many commentaries say, at this point in chapter 2, Paul is going overboard against Peter. He should not have done this. And I instantly was like, have they not read Jesus' words to the Pharisees? I mean, Jesus' most cutting critique against the Pharisees were their hypocrisy. Or if you just read the last book in the Bible, Revelation, there's... In the first uh, couple chapters, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, there are letters written to seven churches. And if you read them, they're a cutting criticism and critique of these seven churches all in Asia Minor. And sometimes these churches are drifting from orthodoxy. But more often than not, and I'd encourage you to read it this week, more often than not, the rebuke, the judgment that's going to come on these churches is because they were speaking truer things than they were living. Their lives were out of step with the gospel. And Jesus says in light of it, that some of those churches, he's going to spit them out of his mouth. He's going to take the light of those churches away. We write books a lot about how the house is burning, but God says as it relates to hypocrisy, someday he might light the house on fire. Hypocrisy is a real hard bugger to get out of our hearts. And sometimes we need a friend to come and point it out for us. It was like two or three years ago, and a friend came up to me, 
and he pointed out something hypocritical in my life. He said, you always talk about how much you love us, you love this church, and yet when we're hanging out, you make these little jabs making fun of Puyallup. And I instantly knew what he was talking about. And it became like a little bit that I would do about how funny Puyallup was. And he said, but Puyallup's filled with people. And instantly I was cut to the heart. Like We need friends like that. Friends who say, you, you, are, you speak a better truth than you live. Peter had a friend like that. I hope you do as well. Now, we can't stop there because that's just the rebuke. Paul wasn't mad merely because Peter was two-faced. That truth is an irritation. But really, the true tragedy is the inevitable conclusion that happens. So when a man and his message or a woman and her word don't match, instantly the woman or the man are discredited and so is the message. That's why hypocrisy is so dangerous. And it's why Paul comes at Peter so hard. And so that's basically the argument in verses 15 through 21. Now, this whole section, verses 15 to verse 21, whole dissertations have been written to dissertate and dissect this entire section. And in one sense, I'm going to save all of you because I think if you just, if you just stand back and kind of clump it together and we put it next to this rebuke, it becomes clear what Paul is saying. And I don't think it's rocket science. So in verses 15 through 17, Paul addresses Peter and reminds him that they're Jewish Christians. But like Gentiles, they too were made right with God, not because of outward circumstances, not because of circumcision, not not because of food laws. They were made right with God because they put their faith in Jesus. You read that in Abraham, right? Abraham, Abraham believed and was credited to him as righteous. His righteousness came through belief in the promises of God. Peter obviously believed that. And so what Paul is doing is slowly pushing Peter back into a corner. Even this rhetorical question in verse 17 functions in that way. So evidently some people started saying, Jesus is not just condoning, but Jesus is not just allowing. Jesus is actually perpetuating sin because he's allowing people to eat bacon. And Paul says, no. Surely Jesus is not promoting sin. And you can just imagine Peter at this point going like, yes, 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 yes. You know, we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory alone. By He's like, I believe in the five solas. Like Peter's like, yes, that's exactly right. We are justified through faith in Christ alone, through the blood of Christ. And he just, and at this point, Paul's like, I got Peter right where I want him. Check mate. And you see the shift in verse 18. Just look at the pronoun shift. He's like, we, 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 we. And then Paul steps aside and is like, I. And instantly, Peter's about to get cut to the heart. Paul's basically saying, yes, we believe in this doctrine, but only I am living consistent with it. Paul announces, I've been crucified in Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I live by faith. I live by grace. Paul's basically saying, Peter, the message of the gospel is this, that we have been brought together as a family, 
not through cultural rituals, not through food laws, not through circumcision. We are part of the family of God through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. That is how this whole thing works. That's the message of the Bible from beginning to end. The people of God are formed and forged through grace, through God's grace applied to sinners. Whether you're white or black, whether you're first class or last class, whether you're a back row Baptist or a front row Presbyterian, all of those barriers have been broken down by Jesus Christ. And now through his blood and faith in Jesus Christ and his death, you are made one in Christ. That is the gospel that Peter or that Paul is preaching that Peter also believes in. And he's saying your life by just subtly eating at the different table is undermining the very message that both of us are preaching. Peter preached a better gospel than he lived. But Peter knew the gospel. And I think at this point, this should terrify all of us. Because Peter came out of step with the gospel by doing something as little as just deciding he was going to eat kosher with some of his friends. And it was that little behavior, that little tweak that made Paul confront him because it was undermining the very message that he was preaching. It was, in one sense, communicating visually a false gospel, a contra-gospel, a different gospel. And so Paul had to confront Peter because hypocrisy, by its nature, by its definition, undermines the gospel and undermines the message and the messenger. Now, we don't really know Peter's response. We can guess it based on other things, but it doesn't tell us how he really responds at this moment. But we know how he ought to respond. We know the purpose of what his response should be. He ought to have repented. That is the response to hypocrisy. If hypocrisy undermines you as the person, as the messenger, and the message that you are proclaiming, then the only way to restore the man or the woman and the message is repentance. Is to say, I'm sorry. My life was not consistent with my doctrine. And when you do that, inevitably, over time, with true repentance, you can be restored. Your message and you as a person can be restored. I mean, can you imagine a politician doing this? Can you imagine a politician saying, I know I said this, but I lived this way. There is an inconsistency here, and I want to ask the American public if you would forgive me for how I've, you know, been not living in step with the message that I've been proclaiming, and I'm probably going to do it again, so I'm going to need your help. I want you to call me out on it so that I can live a more consistent life. Can you imagine, like, even if you're, like, across the political aisle, you'd be like, I don't know, but I instantly trust this guy more. That's the power of repentance. And I think that's the message that we are left with here. That as it relates to all of our lives, in all of those times in which our lives are not as faithful to our words, we must repent. When our friend comes up to us and points it out, we must not defend, not deflect, not excuse our first 
our, our, our first thing that we must do is to say, you're right. You're right. We must repent of ways in which we have actually been a barrier to non-Christians coming to church because of our hypocrisy. We must repent and repent and repent. We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Doctrine and deed in perfect harmony. What God united, let no man separate. Now, all my cards are on the table. So, church, if God would be so good for for our church and other churches to see a great movement of God, to see men and women come to Christ, it's going to take not just the purity of the preached gospel, it's also going to take the purity of our lived lives. If we are to see God work in ways to, to... break down ethnic disunity. It's going to take not just the gospel that does that. It's going to take men and women who are living in line of that gospel. If we want to see churches planted, churches revitalized, it's going to take great doctrine and great deeds. This is what it's going to need. We need to not just preach grace. We need to live grace. We need to not preach the prince of peace. We need to live and extend peace to our neighbors. This is the plan all along. Orthodox theology lived out in the covenant community of God. And I'm hopeful because there's 2,000 years of men and women and churches doing just that. And when we do fail and we will, all we do is we get back on the gospel through repentance and remind ourselves of the assurance of pardon that we have. What, what God united, doctrine and deed, no man, no woman ought to separate. God, we are so grateful. We are grateful that in the midst of the ways in which we fail to live, the lives that you call us to live, we are thankful that we can, it is safe to approach you in forgiveness because we see that there will be a smiling face. So thank you for the ways in which you consistently use us even when we are weak and fail. Thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. And we pray even now, as we participate in this meal, you would remind us again that through the gospel, all of the barriers have been broken down so that one people can come through Jesus Christ to participate in his eternal kingdom. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, the first, the first Sunday of the month, we participate in the family meal, and that's what this is. This is a physical display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a physical display of doctrine. That all of us come to this table not because of our good deeds, not because of what we didn't do or did do. We come to this table through the blood of Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus. And so, one of the things that Paul reminds us to, not just in Galatians, but in 1 Corinthians, is that as we participate in this meal we ought to actually kind of think about our own lives and think about the ways in which we uh, have lived. And this meal should actually form us in such a way that if there is disunity, we can 
approach one another and ask for forgiveness. And so if that be you, I would just encourage you to, to, to do that after the service, to do that privately in your heart, but then afterwards to, to find a brother and sister or to find someone in your life and to seek them out in love. But for the rest of us, this meal is for the Christian, those who have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, which is normally uh, displayed in baptism. So if that describes you, even if you're not a member of this church, we welcome you to the table. But if for whatever reason that doesn't describe you, if you're still trying to figure out this Jesus thing, we just ask, just at this moment, just consider the gospel that was preached to you and let the elements pass you by. So in a moment, the ushers are going to come forward. They're going to pass out the elements. Just hold them in your hands. We are going to take communion and the elements together as a sign of our unity as the body of Christ. So as you do, let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for your your grace that we can come to this table through the blood of Jesus. Lord, we, we ask that you would humble us, that you would fill us with gratitude, and that you would help us to be courageous, to live courageous Christian lives in light of your grace. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.